out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastor. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the Bolshoi because I recently spoke to Trevor Tanner, the frontman, singer, composer, and guitarist as well with the band to find out more about life, love, poetry and everything else. So this is the interview. So after several minutes of casual but interesting chat, we got down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. And also just to say that uh, very recently he's teamed up with a keyboard player from the band, Paul Clark, to record new material. And they are going to be what they are called the Bolshoi Brothers. So you'll find out more about that in the interview. It's exciting times in 2023. But anyway, formative years, a musical moment that changes everything. Trevor, it's over to you. Yeah, it was in the back of my dad's Morris Marina. We were driving somewhere in London. And I remember it was Radio 2. I think it was Pete Murray's show. And they played Watch That Man by Off A Lad Insane, David Bowie. I don't know why they played that, but they did. Yes. Um, and I remember thinking, what the heck is that? My dad tried to turn it over, and I was like, "No, no, 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 no! Leave that on," because I, you know, I, I grew up with all the sweet and all the stuff like that. But that was probably when I heard David Bowie for the first time. It pretty much blew my mind. So, yes, it and Mick was. Ronson too. Mick, Mick Ronson was just a big to me as Bowie because I just loved the guitar. I was always into the guitar. So, yes, well, absolutely. And there's been a film and a book about Mick Mick Ronson, which is kind of um, good because. Obviously, he didn't get any royalties, probably, from any of those songs. I was, I was lucky enough to meet him because my our management uh, managed a band called One the Juggler. He produced one of their albums about the same time he did that Morrissey album. And uh, I, I got to hang out with him a little bit. He was a really, really great guy, really cool. And he yes. would never talk, he would never talk about the old days. We always try and get, to get him to talk about stuff, but he wouldn't. So. No. So that was probably 91, 92 you but met him. I don't know. I can't remember, to be honest with you. But like, no. you know, it, was, it was very cool. We used to go to... He would go in the pub at lunchtime and bet on horses and drink a drink a Guinness with a shot of port in the bottom of it. I thought that was very exotic and cool. So, right. Well, there you go. That's a bit Mick yeah. Ronson for you. Was he looking? Yeah. Yes, I know. I was gonna. Yes. So, what was? What were your? Did you have any brothers or sisters who were sort of musical or had any kind of? Um... No, my younger sister Tracy. She's completely clueless. We actually just had a fight last night about Harry Styles. So um, she she likes take that and stuff like that. She used to go and see the boys' bands back in the day. And uh, she's completely, I, I love her to death, but she's terrible. She has terrible musical taste, and she'll admit that. <laughs> my mom used to play, my mom listens to old school country music, like Jim Reeves, that kind of stuff. So I was had a good grounding and a good song, you know, because she listened to that stuff. She's Scottish. And, um, yeah, I just sort of found my own way. You know, I was in a couple of, like, bands when I was a teenager and we would I remember playing the Silver Jubilee in the front yard and getting the police came on and told us to shut up. <laughs> <laughs> so I always played guitar and, and was into music from a very early age, you know? Yes. Because my parents, uh, you know, of that generation who were very working class but from the countryside, I mean they 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 kind of when they got married in the late fifties, they kind of they they were that generation that never had any debt, so they sold all their possessions, which were like you know, the records and record player and everything basically. And things started to appear again in the seventies, but my, they had kind of shocking music taste. They had, well, I you know they had country. It was country and western and Jim Reeves, the Jim Reeves album and Boxcar Willie and 
Crystal Girl were all ones that I got to to know quite well. So, um, yes, the name Jim Reeves still slightly haunts me, but um, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so what was your first record that you bought after hearing David Bowie's Watch That Man? Well, actually, uh, well, I don't remember the exact sequence of events. I know the first record I ever got was one of those KTEL compilations. And uh, it had, I remember it had, like, Deep Purple were on there with Fireball. I don't know. I just bought it because I think I, it was there. But probably the first time that actually meant anything to me that I bought was probably, I was pro the first single was probably Sweet, maybe, Boring Blitz. I bought that. And I used to like the Sweet B-sides. They wrote all their own B-sides, didn't they? The other stuff was Chin and Chapman. And I liked their, I liked their B-sides better. Yes. Well, I, I was a we I was weirdo from an early age. I was never never where I should be, you know. Yes, but I do have a very fond memory of that uh, Deep Purple track, Fireball, because it has that amazing whoosh sound at the beginning, doesn't it? Yeah. Which, which is and the drums come in and it's all like woo, you know. Yeah. Well, funny enough, a few years ago, I did an interview with that producer called Mike Thorne, who worked with Soft Cell. But his earliest period or moment was doing that record, and I asked wow. him. And I didn't know the connection until I was talking to him, but it was kind of an air vent that made that weird sound, some sort of, you know, and he recorded it as a young kid in the studio and put it at the beginning of that record. And I thought, wow, 10 years later, you then work on Soft Cell and that's your sound, isn't it? That's your difference. It's crazy, right? Yeah. It's very strange. So when did you start thinking you were going to be... Did you have a kind of a musical change though? Because you've been in London. Obviously, it's a little bit more hip than us country kids. So, did punk come along and change everything for you? Well, what happened to me? I went to Catholic schools all my life, not because my family was particularly religious, although my mum was Catholic, but because she thought it'd be good for the discipline, would be good for me, you know. Um, so, went to a, uh, St. Mary's in Elton when I was a kid. And because I was a good singer in the choir, they had an experimental guitar teacher come for a while. They had about four or five kids did guitar lessons, and I was one of them because I was a good singer in the choir. And I was hooked, you know. They ended up getting rid of the guitar teacher because he told us he was an Indian gentleman, and he and he had a very he was very hairy. And he told us that the the patch of hair on the small of his back was where they cut off his tail at customs when he came into Britain. And we told our parents this, and so that got him fired from the Catholic school. <laughs> but I carried on with it. And then, um, you know, my family moved from South London out to the West Country when I was about 12. And that was pretty horrible. I mean, the countryside was nice, but it was a lot slower and I found it very hard. But like, um, you know, you meet up with like minded kids and you start you getting little bands and things like that. And it gradually just evolves. And I, I was when I was like. 14 or whatever in school and they decided you have to do your thing and choose which subjects you want i told them i was going to be a rock star so i didn't care and they took their mom came in and they took her to one side and said trevor's completely off his rocker you know he just says he's going to be a musician and that's all there is to it and she goes what have you heard him he's really good <laughs> so, so i didn't really i wasn't really much i wasn't stupid at school i was pretty smart but i had no interest in it because i knew i was going to be a musician i knew yes. that's what i was going to do yeah Amazing. So then, so so you on the West Country, when did you sort of move again? Was there another time when you sort of moved back yeah, to London? Yeah, I, I, I got to know Jan. Jan was my friend and uh, he was from there too. His family is Polish. They were refugees in the Second World War. They came over to that area. And pretty much as soon as we could, we were in a punk band together. Well, punk band, kind of new wavy band with some older boys called Moscow. We had a couple of singles and stuff. And I was a bass player. And then we got our, we went and rented a house for a few months. And then 
we kind of drifted apart and got back together. We ended up moving to London when we, he was about, I don't know, 18 and I was about 18. He was 19, about a year older than me. So I ended up just moving back to London and just roughing it and get, getting a council flat from some Scottish dude that subletted it to us in Peckham, infamous Peckham estate where Del Boy and them, those guys were supposed to be living. And uh, yes. just became South London boy at, right, all over again, you know? So yes. and Jan and I started the band. It was our, it was our band, you know? Oh, blimey. We had various people in it, but... It's interesting because East Anglia's got a lot of po a big Polish community because of the, the Second World War. And, um, yes, a lot of people sort of came to, um, yeah, I suppose... We used to East rehearse Anglia. at the Polish club. Jan's dad was something to do with the Polish club, and those old dudes would give us booze when we were about 14. It was great. And <laughs> <laughs> we got to know that beer Zivietz really well. And um, I remember we, they used to have a, a New Year's Eve party at my school, St. Augustine's, and... Uh, we would play an hour in between the polka band. We were like the young guys that played the rock and roll for an hour. And, it, and these old fellas would give us honey vodka and stuff. We'd get absolutely plastered and just be rolling and puking all night. So it was good times, you know? Well, absolutely. And when did your when did your introduction to Arsenal appear? Oh, way before that, when I lived in, when I was a little boy. I don't know. I think it may be my, my relatives. Because Arsenal's sort of like the Celtic team of London, if, in a way. I don't know, maybe because there's a lot of Irish people in that Highbury or whatever. But I ended up just, it was just a lot of my family went to it. So I just, I just gravitated towards it, you know? Yes. Did you want to be Charlie George? I like Charlie George. Yeah. I've got a little corner in my studio I call Charlie George Corner because I got an old school Arsenal shirt on the wall. Yes. And, I, um, I like that movie Fever Pitch. I thought that was funny. Yes, absolutely. I do remember the, they played Ipswich, didn't they? Was that 78 in the FA Cup? And then they followed it with Man United when they had that dramatic last minute goal. Yeah. I mean, football, football's, I, I'm not obsessed with it. I just really enjoy it. And I enjoy the, all the hoopla of it, too. I like keeping up with the, the gossip and the nonsense. It's fun, you know? Yes, well, absolutely. I'm not, I'm not really... I was never into an athletic kid or into athletics, but I always liked football. Paul's a Leeds guy. Paul's into Leeds because he's from Leeds. But he's honestly... He's more of a Formula One type dude because he's kind of a boffin. You know? He's scientific. Right. I'm more of a lad, I guess. He's more into aerodynamics and sort of, you know. Specs. He's really into it, man. He knows all the specs and the brake and all this stuff. It's incredible. It's I can't keep up with it. I just, I just watch Lewis Hamilton go, "Come on, Lewis." That's about yeah. it. I know. We just remember Jackie Stewart, really, don't we? And Emerson. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was my decade. I remember back in the, when the when we were doing some of our demos that eventually became Country Life. We used to have a we had a scale electric set, the band, and we all had our own cars. And I remember that as soon as we got out of the box. I think it was Nick grabbed freaking Nigel Mansell's car. He was Nigel Mansell. I ended up getting the camel yellow car, which I was annoyed about. But then that ended up being the fastest one. So that was fun. Yes. But Skeletric was a thing back then. And we used to, you know, we used to set it up and play it. And... Yes. Well, I, I think, yeah, it was James Hunt. That's the most amazing story, James Hunt story, because um, that's when you could just have a go, wasn't it, really? And, and Yeah, yeah, exactly. He just had an eccentric backer and went, come on, James, we can fix something and race cars, <laughs> which was, you know, have a drink first and you'll be fine. But yeah, yeah. so look, 79, Thatcher gets in and then we have, you know, it all changes. The 80s is kind of weird, isn't it? We have the Fortnum Wall, we have the Miner Strike, you know, Greenham Common, we think we're all going to get blown up. And then you yeah. have that punk period, then post-punk, and then sort of the birth of indie pop around 82 to 83. Because I suppose the band that I absolutely loved was the Smiths. And between 82 to 87, there was this kind of golden 
five-year period. So what was the early 80s for you as well? Well, I've always always had very eclectic tastes. I mean, one of the first gigs I went to see was Rainbow, Richie Blackmore's Rainbow, when I was really young in Swansea. And that was the first Rainbow tour, and that was an amazing gig. And then one of the other first gigs I went to see was Susie and the Banshees, being with uh, the Human League, opening up for them when he had his long hair and the two guys on synths and stuff. And yes. Listen to the voice of Buddha and all that stuff. So I, and I like Genesis and prog rock and stuff. And I also like, I love the Pistols and the Clash and, you know, the B-52s and Wall of Voodoo and all that stuff. I was into it. Like, I've always been into a lot of different stuff, you know? Yes, absolutely. Well, my and of course, the country, I, I always liked my mum's Johnny Cash and all that stuff too. I always enjoyed listening to that. Yes, I love the Wall of Voodoo. Such a great band. We had we did a few gigs up and up for them, and I got I actually it was after Stan Ridgeway left, but I went to see Stan Ridgeway's son. I got to meet him. He's a great guy, really cool guy. Yes, his Mexican. wife slapped him for calling her the tits of the band on stage, and he just turned. It was I was there standing there with a couple of people, one of the which was one of the Copeland brothers. I think it was Ian. And he, she slapped him and said, "Don't ever call me the tits of the band again." Stan <laughs> walked off, and he looked at us, and it was like he just said, "What can I say, fellas? It's true love." <laughs> <laughs> yes, God. And with the Rainbow period, which which who was the lead singer at that stage? Was it? Um... It was Dio. Ronnie James Dio was the first two. It was only two and for the original album Rainbow. Blackmore was incredible. He was. And he was such an asshole in the encore. I remember I was really young and my older friends took me, much to my mum's. My mum didn't want me to go. But, like, I remember he came on at the end and he did all this chicanery on the guitar and he played, like, about 12 bars of Smoke on the Water. And then he just looked at the audience, tossed his pick and walked off. And I was like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I, I do remember, it must have been the early 80s when they suddenly had that. Well, my brother had Rainbow Rise, which I thought was a brilliant album, and Kill the yeah. King and all those. And then, Yeah, it was good, yeah. And then they had Surrender, which had the other lead singer for a while. Yeah, they so. got all kind of American LA then, didn't they? They went all kind of, they lost all the mysticism and the swords and the, you know, skulls and stuff and went all kind of Los Angeles. Yes, though it was a bit of a, one of those stories that no one got paid apart from Richie, so it was a bit like, mm, unfortunately. Yeah, I, I, I like the stories about Richie. I, I always think it's like, you know, people expect everyone to be super nice, and I'm like, why? Why do you think everyone's going to be like a nice guy? You know, I mean, like, you remember? Do you ever see that show Ren and Stimpy? It's an American cartoon show, and then the creator got in all this trouble for like nurturing along these young girls, and when they were like older, he become their boyfriend and stuff and he's very very despicable but quite kind of funny you know and i'm like this cartoon is so far from normal normalcy why would you expect the guy that, that coming up with it to be you know dudley do right you know what i mean walt disney i don't know it's yes. interesting it's a bit I, like I love the blackmore stuff i love yes well i i love what he's doing now with his wife with his little pixie hat sort of yeah doing... and, his, and his little podcast where he just sits and gets completely fucked up while she tells stories and he goes <laughs> Yeah, no, <laughs> I love it. He's from yes. Western Supermare, I think, Richie Blackmore, isn't he? Yes, possibly. I know like John Cleese. Similar characters, I think. Yeah, still, still doing it. But I think it's sweet. I think her name's Candy, isn't it? Or Sandy? Of course, it is. Yeah, it would be. You know. <laughs> so where Candy you, so, or Brandy? Yeah, it's something cute, and you couldn't imagine. You'd love to see the, you know, watch them in the morning getting up and making breakfast together because. You know, he's such a dark character and all the ex-members of Deep Purple, all, all the members of Deep Purple just go, it's much better without so-and-so in the band. <laughs> yeah, but no, nobody wants to see him without him. They just love they love his playing because he's such a savage, you know? 
Yes, this is true. And their new album's dreadful. But look, then your, was your first band Moscow then? Um, uh, I had a couple of like little bands from mates of mine on the estate and we would try and do it. But really, first proper band was probably Moscow because that was the first band I went to the studio with and stuff. But I was just a bass player. I wasn't a singer or anything. But I was, I was, I was, I was a pretty pretentious bass player. Like I wanted the attention. I would play, I, I found a pair of, old ladies kind of silk gloves that came up to your elbow at Oxfam and I would play the bass wearing those just to get the tension, you know? Excellent. I tell you, I'm the bass player, but I'm kind of, look at me, you know? Yes. So then from that, but that was with Jan was in the band at that stage, wasn't Jan he? Jan was in that band. He was in the band before me. I, I used to go and like help out carrying the gear and then their bass player left. So I dipped in there. I got in there. Yes, absolutely. I think that's what I mean, happened. Jan and I were really, really good pals, you know, and we were very good friends. Yes. But then, was it 83, 84 that you make your big move for the, the the sort of band of the 80s? I don't remember how it happened. I just know we were living in London. We were doing different... We both had stupid jobs. We were, I mean, I remember I worked in a Coca-Cola factory for like an hour. And like I couldn't handle it. I just walked out. And I was a waiter for about three hours up in Chelsea. I lasted three hours before I left that. And like, we had, we're just trying to find our way. And then we got... A, I, Got a letter from the Covent. We made a demo and we sent we sent it around to a few venues. And I just got a I got a letter from Covent Garden, the Rock Garden, I think it was called. And they were like, "We can offer you a gig on this day." So I called up, and we hadn't actually had a name for the band at that point. It was just me and Jan and a guy called Graham on bass. We used to rehearse once a week or something in those rehearsal studios, and we would just drink whiskey until we couldn't stand up. And uh, you know, we were writing all the songs. Happy, we had all those songs back in the day, and then like. We just started getting a few gigs here and there, and we would just go out and just be as obnoxious as possible just because we're always opening for some band, you know? And I would just go out there and abuse the audience, and they would remember us because of that. <laughs> and I was trying to play guitar, too. I was trying to play. I wasn't that good then. I'm pretty good now, but I wasn't that good then. But I was – I had, you know, I had a Stratocaster and a Fender amp, and I was trying to – I was just standing there with an echo unit making a racket, you know? Yes, excellent. And we were just, we were just, we were loud and obnoxious, and we, we, we would tend to playing at Thames Poly and little gigs like that. We tend to usually be remembered because we were so rude and snotty with people. And right, we had a couple of good songs, and then we got. That's how we started getting a reputation. Yes, so you you supported people like the Cult, the March Violets, the Lords of the New. That Church. was later on. The early days, we were just we were just on the bill with the local like next band Praxis. We would be supporting them at the Thames Poly, and then. Woolwich and little gigs around then and then when we started getting a little bit of attention we started getting on those better better bills you know with the cult at the Lyceum and things like that and I man we had a manager at that point but basically it just started from being just really rude and obnoxious on stage and just getting a reputation people used to come to gigs to try and zing me you know to try and get me to court talk to them and I would I would oblige them you know because I'm <laughs> I'm a Catholic boy we're all good at that you know so excellent <laughs> that's fantastic because one of the things that i think that really helped the the sort of music world of the 80s was that fact that most people that i seem to have interviewed were unemployed or on job seekers allowance or enterprise allowance schemes which yeah. gave gave everybody certain you know like 38 pound a week the housing benefit and you know your council tax and it sort of gave everyone that kind of 
chance to have the time to be in a band and make a noise. And there were a lot of venues. And also, I don't know, John Peel was a massive factor of the 80s, really, and 90s, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. But, there were, but every, you know, and we had three weekly music papers as well, which helped as well. So there was a sort of a sense that people could, if you wanted to, at least get a little bit of a, a, a sort of traction with the career of the band. Oh yeah! Once you, if you had a single out, you were ahead of the game. You know, the record companies and stuff. If you, if you got to the point where you got yourself a record in your hand, you could show people you were on the first rung. You know what I mean? Yes, absolutely. So then, when you, why did Graham leave at this stage? Because then he was replaced with Nick, wasn't he? Yeah, he. Uh, well, honestly, he left because he wasn't as he wasn't as serious as Jan and myself, and he. It, and there was a thing where he had a birth a surprise birthday party planned for him at the time. We were recording in Trident. Which is where they did Transformer and Ziggy Stardust and all that stuff, which was really cool. And um, <clears throat> we were just recording in the downtime at night. And Graham said he had to go to a birthday party. And I said, Well, you you can't go to your birthday party because we've got this free studio time and we got to use it. You know, we got to do it. And he said, Well, I really want to go to my party. And we were like, Well, you if you want to go to your party, you go to your party. But we don't think you should go to your party. And he went to his party. So we said, Right, you're done. And we got Nick in. <laughs> we wanted somebody that was serious I mean it was we just felt like he had a day job he was a nice guy he was a good bass player and he had a Rickenbacker too which is definitely a plus but like uh, he he was just he was just more more into like he had a no, more of a normal life you know he had a life we didn't have a life we were just a couple of rascals just trying to be in a band you know yes did Nick having Nick come in on bass did that sort of make the band a mo- much more of a solid unit well Nick was a lot was a bit older than us I mean really it was he was more, he was into it because he was he was more serious about it than Graham was. But it was really, you know, me and Yam were we've been friends since we were kids, so we we were always pretty solid. Whoever I mean, when Paul came in the band, it, the, the dynamic never really changed for me. It was always me and Yam really, and like I'm, and then you know things happen and people get married and you drift apart. But the nucleus of the band was always Yan and myself. Right, that was that was the key. And then yeah. you got your first single, Sob Story, that was on Situation Two. So you. Mm-hmm. You got a, a label, you know, label interest quite quickly at this stage. Yeah. I mean, I think because our, our manager at the time, Pete, Nicky, they had ties with, with the cult and stuff, and they they knew the guys at Situation 2 and Beggar's Banquet, and they, they got us to deal. Yes. I don't think that... it was anything to do with our merit or anything. I think just Pete, Pete and Nicky were just really good at that stuff. So Giants is kind of an extended, is like a mini album, isn't it? And then it's yeah. kind of... Friends is the one that really brings the band into the sort of the bigger. Well, arena. by the friends, we've done some tours and we've been touring, and we had a real producer because Giants we just did ourselves out in the out in the wild wilderness of Hereford. That's why they sent us to do Giants, and we were just left our own devices for a week with this poor producer, what an engineer guy called Lawrence that we just oh my god, we just terrorized him for a week, <laughs> and then. Uh, well, we only had like five five days to do it or something, and we were we were pretty serious about what we wanted to do. So we would we would go in shifts. Jan would do the drums, and then I we'd all sleep, and then Paul Lawrence would be up all night with me. And then like, you know, so we were just twenty four seven at that point. And then we went on the road. We got some more songs and stuff. And then we went when we did Friends. We just he just we had a producer for the first time, and that was a revelation to me because. Uh, we just went into a rehearsal studio in uh, Greenwich, Woodwolf. We all like to rehearse, and a uh, very nice little place on the water, very kind of rap, ramshackle, you know, very cool. And yes. um, 
And he just rehearsed the shit out of the songs for two weeks to the point where I was completely and utterly sick of them. But when you go in the studio and record like that, it comes out really good, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So with, with Friends, I mean, this is the songwriting at this stage is, has just, you, you hit sort of gold, haven't you, really? Because you've got the opening track away, but also Sunday morning as well. And then looking for a life to lose. So so the, the band is is certainly kind of come together at this stage. Yeah. And uh, well, songs, for example, that song Cool Girls, that was written before we even moved to London. That was an old song. And, uh, you know, uh, some of the uh, some of the songs like Sunday Morning, I recorded Sunday Morning as a four track demo and then the band kind of fleshed it out. And I remember I recorded the guitar solo when I got got back one night from the pub. And this is a new thing, as I said to the producer, I'll, I'll just do it on the day. And he goes, you won't. You'll do it like you did it on the demo. You'll do it exactly the same because it's really good. And that took me like a month to learn that solo. because Even though I played it, I just did it when I was half in the bag, you know. Yes. And he, he wanted it exactly the same. And I thought, this is this is a new challenge, Trevor. you got to do it properly. And I, I enjoyed it. I spent a lot of time learning from Mick Glosser. It was cool. Right. And then, And how did Paul become part of the unit as well? Well, I just got. I, I I wanted us to become more musical, and I and at the time, with just electric guitar, bass, and drums, it was pretty. I found it a little constricting. I wanted more more space in the music. I wanted us to be a better a better band. And I and I and I, I remember I, I listened to Nick's podcast, and he said that Paul just turned out. That's not true. I uh, I, I asked Pete to try and find another another instrumentalist or a keyboard player or something to help me, so I could do more stuff. You know. Yes, blindly, blindly. <laughs> instead of just chug, chug, chug on the guitar and singing and yelling and being rude to people and just like I needed a bit of help, so that's why Paul was brought in. Right, because um, because at that stage there were bands like Sad Lovers and Giants and The Sound, weren't there? Did yeah, The Sound you, was great. I like The Sound. Did you were you kind of as as most people often say they weren't part of a scene, but did you were you kind of influenced by other bands of that stage, or were you just listening to music that was from a different decade and a different scene? Um. Honestly, I mean, we were obviously, of course, you're influenced because you hear things. I mean, I liked all the usual suspects like Kill and Joke and The Cure and that stuff. And like, I loved all that music. I wouldn't say I, I tried to slam in some of our stuff now. I look, I look back and it's it's ridiculously Pink Floydy. And I know that's because we all went to see Pink Floyd and then started writing songs like Pink Floyd for a year, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, of course, you're influenced, but. Yes. Not, not on purpose, I don't think. And you're and you're touring. You were starting to sort of get some bigger tours. Did you enjoy the experience of going on the road? Yeah. Yeah, I loved it, especially coming to America. Yes. I mean, was this because because one of the things that often you know break, breaks bands up is the kind of the touring, and especially most most people, you know, after that five year narrative, get to that point where they're just exhausted and they've had it, and and often the tour of America breaks them. But you you sort of didn't have that experience at all. Well, the thing about the Bolshoi is we were all good mates, so we used to, we actually liked each other, so we had a good time. For example, you know, Paul would. Every time we go to a diner in a different state, he would always have a glass of milk. <clears throat> and he would rate the milk and write down the qualities of it. And he had a little milk diary, little stupid things like that. But it was fun, you know. And yes. um, we always we were always trying the food wherever we went and, and trying to we were like boys on holiday. I was anyway, on holiday, really. And it's of course it's tiring and you get burned out on it. And there's good and bad. But for the most part, I just felt incredibly lucky to be able to be doing that just by playing guitar and singing. It's like wow. You know, other people I knew were working in factories. And, I mean, we didn't really have any money, but we had a good time. 
Yes, and 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 at that point in the the mid eighties, we had the kind of the the political strife because Thatcherism had sort of taken taken over our lives, which most people don't realise now. Well, look, you know, oh, they, I know, right? Thatcher, yes. the milk snatcher. <laughs> this is it. This is it. I mean, did you ever get sort of pulled into that world of Red Wedge or any of those kind of political movements as a band, or did you just keep that to one side? I just, I didn't feel. I felt like. I was aware of that stuff and I had my own my own politics about stuff and all that, but I never felt I used to see bands like the four skins and people like that. And some of those things, and I never felt really comfortable in that world because I thought who the fuck am I to tell anybody anything? You know, I would rather just paint pictures and get my feelings out that way. I didn't feel like I, I was, I didn't feel like a politician, put it that way. No. Then so coming to this sort of second, third album, Lindy's party. Um, what was it? What was the mood of the band like at that stage? Um, well, we had a, we, the thing about Lindy's party was that we we were trying to get this guy David Allen to produce it, who did the Cure's Head on the Door, and he he was going to do it, and then he couldn't do it, and then Vegas wanted it out by a certain time, so it ended up with they said, well, why don't you just have a go at doing it yourselves, and then we'll get we'll get somebody to mix it afterwards, and uh, we just went to the countryside and just recorded it, and you know hindsight's 2020 i mean i think it's a little it's a little patchier because there's no producer holding us all in line you know so but yes. i certainly i think it has some good moments you know everybody had more of a everybody it was more of a much more democratic album the first one let's put it like that yes and <laughs> the first I'm, one was a lot of me and mick glossop in the studio all the time with the other boys coming in and out and then lenny's party was everybody in the studio just you know putting their 10 cents worth in and it you know i'm it's a good album. I think it's got some good songs in it. I'm not, it's not my favourite of the two, but I don't think it's bad. Yes. Well, I, I have to say TV TV Man is a kind of classic, isn't it, really? I guess. I don't know. It's a silly. It's, it's kind of silly, but yeah, you know. <laughs> and then um, Auntie Jean, I actually do have an Auntie Jean. So, we, we, you know, we had fun recording it. We were experimenting with things and stuff, and some of it worked better than others, but I certainly don't think it's a bad album. So I think... I think the one after it would have been better if it had ever actually happened. So, yes, because because at that stage I put eighty seven as probably the best year of music ever. It's a sweeping <laughs> statement, but it's you know there was a kind of a you look at the releases that year and they're just amazing, you know. But then there's a kind of a bit of a shift because I, I sort of still think that most bands have a bit of a five year narrative, you know. It's, you yeah, probably, you know, I agree. They, yeah, they they have the the honeymoon. They have the first album, you know. In the, in those days, you know, the John Peel session and you know, all the touring and then the tricky second and tricky third albums and everyone's, you know, a bit broke still, which as a fan, you never realise that there's no money in the music industry. You always think everyone's having quite a nice time and have, got, <laughs> yeah. have some cash and every band's hanging out with each other in some sort of lovely community in North London. But it's not like that at all, is it really? So, but also the other thing that happens in around the, that 88 period is ecstasy comes on in the scene, doesn't it? And there's a, there's a new kind of, vibe that's starting to happen and then also a lot of those bands i loved you know were all getting a bit exhausted and a bit fed up with it all so 88 89 is quite tricky so how do how were you as a band because obviously you know you're sort of probably playing better than you've ever played before and you've all learned in your instruments but then at the same time keeping that momentum you know people people had got married and yeah i got married and things like that and like he wasn't he was not as engaged with us as he was before and that's just that just things happen in life you know and um 
uh, we were just we just weren't hanging out as much as we used to, and we were all going different. I like I listened to your podcast with Nick, and Nick Nick was always and Nick was the one that was always out and about, and hanging out with other musicians and stuff. I, me and Paul used to just go down the pub and talk shit. We were just pub guys, you know. And then like, <laughs> you know, and I was always I was always writing. I mean, I wrote most I wrote most of the material, and the boys would embellish it here and there. But I was the I'm a writer, you know. I've I've never stopped so. I was still writing and stuff. And that's always been my motivation in music is to express myself through my art, you know? Yes. And I, I, I used to like to take photographs then too. I still do. But, um, and you know, was, we played with a lot of other bands and we met other bands and it was interesting and you learn from them. I'm a chatting with the guys from all of voodoo quite a bit. And then we toured with Pete Murphy and we toured with love and rockets and, you know, you, you learned about stuff and you start to, you start people going different directions. And that's what happened to us. We just started growing apart. You know, we were always a very tight unit of, of guys on the road together and stuff. And then we just sort of started growing apart and that's just a natural, and we pissed off the record label too. So every time we'd give them a demo, they'd say, no, nah, we don't really like that. What else have you got? So we had that going on and they, there was so they wanted so much money for somebody to buy us out. We couldn't get another deal. And we ended up just kind of like running out of gas. And we, we all made a mutual decision that we didn't want to go and just have the band spiral down into obscurity. We'd rather just stop, you know? Yes. So how far, so with Country Life, you, you recorded... Those were, those were mostly demos that were to, that we were told at the time weren't, were not good. There's all, they're from different times and different studios. I don't know what Nick was talking about, the Shed in Croydon, because I don't remember Shed in Croydon, but I remember Falconer Studios and Warner Chapels, our published company studios, and doing stuff, you know, all over the place and every time we we take the demos they would be like ah you know we don't really think it's your strongest material because they they we, we, they were fed up with us and they were trying to sell us to somebody else yes and you know irs were fed up with us because we didn't sign their awful publishing deal at the time so you know we were we weren't flavor of the month with the industry people and we just got to the point where you know I, I was trying to get the band I, the people were offering me solo deals at the time and i was trying to take the band with me and maybe in hindsight, I should have just done the deal and got them to play the music. But at the time, I felt that I was being disloyal, you know. So, well, there's one company wanted to make me like the the goth Jim Morrison of techno sort of thing. I was <laughs> like, what? I could see myself doing that. But then I thought, well, I can't. I, I would feel too bad about my mates, you know. Yes. Were, so, you, uh, and, were you and Jan still a sort of a tight, tight unit? Well, he he was married at that point, And he, I think he was... He moved. I mean, he he was into it. You know, he wanted. He didn't want to be like a part of the gang anymore. I think I think he'd outgrown the gang, and we were all starting to get like a little. We weren't like fe- jaded and fed up with each other because we still stayed friends after the Bolshoi finished. But yes, Jan was definitely Jan was living in Harrow. He was out of South London. He wasn't living near us, and we didn't see that much of it. You know, right? Did you? Um, and did- I, at the time, I I would I was pretty ruthless about stuff too. If I wanted to record something and then he didn't want to do it, I just do it anyway. Right. Sometimes I got different people in to play drums and I and a couple of songs that Nick didn't want to play bass on, I just play bass. So yes. I was, you know, I've I've always I've always, you know, been into the music and whatever it takes, I will do that, you know. Blimey. Still like, still like that. That's the one thing I've noticed about doing this show. And I, you know, I mean, as a fan, I didn't have that kind of appreciation. But everybody most people are really, really obsessed with me, you know, have it wasn't just a little bit of a hobby that they could drop. It was like a real thing that just drive, drive, drives them still to this day is kind of wanting to make another record and still 
Make well, money. I mean, I, I I never really cared about being famous or making money. I just, I mean, I'll, I'll give, tell you a story. I'll give you, you know, the nutshell was I, I was at the Iridium Club in New York about long, maybe 20 years ago, 15, 20 years ago. And I was, I went to see Les Paul play. And this is a true story. I've, I've got the best Les Paul story ever. And I've been taking my demos around to a few record companies. And this is, you know, this is when it was all freaking prodigy and all this stuff. And, and I, my demos were, they were probably like, I don't know, I can't, I, I can't speak for what they were, but they weren't. It was good stuff. And I was disappointed because I wasn't getting the reaction I wanted. I went to see Les Paul and afterwards uh, he was doing signing stuff. He was great. He, would, he let the other guys do all the hard stuff and he would just do the flashy stuff and everyone would cheer and it was great. So afterwards I, I wanted to meet him. So I waited in line and I didn't have, I couldn't afford one of his CDs because a Heineken in there was like $20 or something. So I had two Heinekens and that was my money gone. So I said, could you sign this for me, Mr. Paul? And he's like, that's not one of my CDs. I said, no, it's not. It's one of mine. But could you just sign it anyway, please? And he's like, you're a musician? I was like, yeah. And he goes, are you a guitar player? I said, yeah. And he goes, you any good? <laughs> I said, not like you, but I can play a little bit, you know. <laughs> he goes, have you got one of my guitars? I said, yeah, of course I have. Everyone's got one. And he goes, what do you think of it? So it's great. So come on, what do you think of it? You have to tell me something. I'm so I said, oh, it's a little heavy. And he's like, that's why I don't play one of the sons of bitches. And he looked at me, he goes, how's your career going? I went, ah, it's all right. And he must have sent something because he reached forward and he grabbed both my wrists. It's real death grip, you know, and looked at me. He said, let me tell you something. If you've got a guitar in your hand and you're making a motherfucking dollar, you're a motherfucking professional guitar player. You hear me? And I was like, got a little tear in my eye, you know, and I was like, yeah, yes, sir. You know, and he goes. You, you know, don't you forget that? Les Paul told you that. I thought, I'll never forget that as long as I live. That's pretty much what I've lived by my whole life. If I've got a guitar and I'm making the dollar, I'm, I'm happy. Blimey. God, yeah. that's that's a moment, isn't it? Cheesy. I mean, that's a really incredible story, but it's true. It's a true story. And yes. I walked out and I was just like, wow, I just, I feel like I just got a message from God. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> wow. That's quite something. I mean, when you, I mean, I don't know if you watched it, but, you know, last last year, the year before, you know, the Beatles eight-hour film about them making their last album. Did you, Yeah, I loved it. It was great. Did you kind of relate to that kind of, you know, seeing the dynamic of the band and then they got, you know, the the keyboard player came in and he sort of, twi- you know, did some bits yeah. of pieces. Yeah, and it was nice to see them at that point because we all know them as the likely lads when they were in black and white tooling around on the trains and stuff and then we know them as grizzled old hippies and stuff like that but we never really saw them as just young guys you know 30 something guys yes <laughs> yeah i thought it was interesting it was it was kind of an interesting process <coughs> so, so with the band did you have one, one thing i did one thing i will say about that is when i watched that we recorded uh tv map please in that same studio in abbey road and i, I remembered it was extremely tedious going up and down those stairs to the control room from the studio itself and then, and then i realized why the beatles did so many takes of every song was so they didn't have to go up to the control room to listen and that was i could see that you know that they would just do like 20 takes because they couldn't be asked to walk up and down the stairs every time <laughs> that's that pretty funny so yeah i related to that too i thought i know i know that feeling you know yes did you enjoy that kind of studio time you know oh yeah i just i always felt very fortunate and lucky to be doing what i was doing i, I knew how I knew how many people that I knew would love to be in that position, as hard or grueling as it ever got. And I, we had some moments on the road where, you know, I, I, I remember once sitting in a laundromat hiding from Jeff, our tour manager in Canada, because I wanted to cook some clean clothes to wear, giggling maniacally, looking at the laundry going around, because I was so proud of myself for avoiding having to go and do an interview in a 
in a record shop and just do my laundry instead. And I realized you, you're getting a bit unhinged here, Trevor. You need to like take a step back, you know, <laughs> but I still felt like lucky, you know, to have the, to have the experience and go home and tell my mum the stories and all that stuff. It was really, I've always felt very lucky to be doing what I'm doing. So what European country took you to heart? Cause mostly people have one country, you know, like, Oh, Spain loved us or Italy. Loved yeah, us. Spain, Spain loved us. Cause it's Sunday morning, I think that Brazil and Argentina and South America, because I think they, uh, the whole thing about Sunday morning, it's not an anti-religious song. It's just, I, I'm glad I, I don't want to go to church every Sunday, watch all the hypocrites, you know, sort of thing. Yes. But I think a lot of people in those countries related to that. Yes. So I think, yeah, I do. I think the Sunday morning thing broke, more than a way, broke us in those kind of countries. Yeah, it's. A, I mean, the lyrics are great. I mean, and 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 I've sort of been watching lots of your live live bits on youtube i mean you do suddenly you know the band do look good on stage don't they they sound good and they look good and you've got a great kind of presence so um... they used to call us the ugly cure and i thought that was funny they said we were like an ugly cure and i thought okay i'll take that yes so did <laughs> so did the band did you have a moment where you all sort of sat there together and say this is the quote jim morrison the end or did you how yeah did we it... did did yeah, you we did we we kept trying to get we kept trying to get a deal and we we couldn't get a deal and every like you said everything was changing in in the music landscape and I, and I I was trying I was actually talking to labels that were trying to get me to go just sign a deal with them and just do something solo and I was like no you got to take the whole band they wouldn't take the band and it, they would start the the day of bands is over with and all this stuff and you know at the time you had all this all this kind of I don't know like the Betty, Betty Boo and all this kind of dance stuff and all that coming out. I, we weren't really comfortable with that. And we just we just sat down and I said, guys, I can't, I can't, we can't do it. We can't do it. We need to take it. We need a break. We need to just do something else. Yes. And we all then, agreed on it. But I wouldn't say. I, I was going to say a few years later, we had Brit Pop. Did you think, oh, blimey, we, you know, we, we kind of should be there. We could be there. I, I, I think you're right. I think every band has a narrative and I think it would just run its course, to be honest with you. But I mean, I don't think we'd ever been comfortable. To, I mean, Britpop band. I had a couple of bands after that. But I had a band called Kite and stuff, and we were doing some kind of Britpoppy gigs and things like that. But it, it just felt kind of like, like I wasn't really. It wasn't really me, you know. I was kind of like different background, you know. I, I wasn't going to go on and be all like the Kinks and all this stuff. I was more of a rock guy, a Bowie guy, glam rock guy like yourself, you know. Yes. And, um, and then you had the Blur, and then of course Oasis and all that, and it was just like. I just, I just found it like, I just thought, well, that wasn't what made us break up. What made us break up was we didn't want to just go out and be, play Whitby Goth Festival twice a year and stuff like that. And I just said, we we just decided that we shouldn't, we shouldn't just take everything that was good out of it and just beat it to death. We're just trying to flog a dead horse is what we felt like. So we just thought we'd stop and keep the legacy so people would remember us in a good way. Yes. And then every, every, I think two weeks ago, there was a, the 10 best underrated bands of the 80s you must get sick of seeing that list oh god yeah yeah i do but it's nice it's nice that it's nice that people remember us fun it's nice that people i think some of the songs still stand up which is nice because a friend of mine he's actually a journalist now but he was saying he was listening to some bolshevist stuff recently he goes your stuff still stands up a lot of the other stuff at the time that was more successful kind of sounds like pantomime stupid circus music or something but you guys still and I've always believed in the power of a good song, you know. I'm kind of like traditional like that. I feel yes. like if you can't sit down and play a guitar and entertain somebody with a song, then it's probably not a good song in the first place. 
No, I mean, and also you didn't have that Trevor Horn production sound, which dates a lot of 80s bands. Quite. Badly. I was watching Bands Reunited the other day, and then Frankie goes to Hollywood on there, and I was like, I mean, it's a long time ago they did it, but and they were like a drummer, a bass player, a guitarist, and a singer, and I was like, that's not Frankie goes to Hollywood. That's not what we. And of course, they decided they didn't want to do it because they they have to rehearse. And I thought, yeah, because it's all it was all backing tracks and keyboard players, and you know, you can, it's not a it's not like a band sound, is it? It's not like that. No, absolutely. So then, what what do you do when when you walk away from the band? What happens next on your musical journey? Uh, try try to be another few other bands. Moved moved out of London to Bath for a while. Had a band out there for a while with the Stranglers management was trying to help me out with it. And it was it was okay. We did we did an album and stuff. We actually did an album produced by um, Adrian Borland from The Sound. We did an album with him. He was great. Yes. It was very sad. So sad what happened to him. And um, I I you know and then I went to America for a while and then we we all just did different things. We just we did. I was still stayed friends with Nick. I didn't see Jan anymore because Jan had moved. And Jan I, I think Jan got moved to the states and got. And became quite religious, I think. I'm not really sure. I haven't spoken to him in a long time, but I know he's moved on. He's got a restaurant and he's got his own business and stuff. So he doesn't really do music anymore. Yeah. And um, one of the reasons we're doing this is because I started working with Paul during the pandemic. Um, I did some solo. I lived in Alabama for a while and I became a roofer for a couple of years. I still played gigs, but I worked construction for three or four years. I became a redneck. And that was fun. I enjoyed that experience. And then one day, I was sitting on a roof hammering away and I just had an epiphany and I just thought, I can't do this. I got to start playing again. You know, it does happen. It does. So this is your, so you did lots of stuff with the emperor uh, penguin yeah. recordings. That was, that's my buddy Wyatt. He's a big fan. He had a fanzine at the time. And that's one of the reasons I started playing again was because of him. And he, he asked if I could do an interview with him. And I was like, and I and I said, as long as it's not, you just don't want to talk about the Bolshoi because I'm doing stuff now too, you know. Yes. He said, I just want to make sure it's you. And I said, it's me because it's a phone then. We didn't have the Captain Kirk FaceTime stuff. And like, mm. and he said, if it's you, have you got a guitar? And I said, yeah. He goes, can you play me the solo to Sunday morning? I said, you cheeky fuck, you know. But anyway, <laughs> I picked the guitar and I played it. And then we laughed and he, we've been friends ever since. And he's done a lot of good for me um, over the years. He's been really helpful with negotiating the, you know, the best of the Bolshoi and all that stuff. And he actually, it was probably largely because of him, the country life thing and all that came to pass because he was relentless with him. And uh, I've done a couple, I've done, I did a three disc solo album with him and lots of other stuff. I played in a Celtic band for 10 years and uh, toured all around the country. And, you know, I still, I've, I've never stopped playing my whole life. I've been a professional musicians since i was 17 years old so so was your country album the musical charlatan there was musical charlatan there was a bullish belly and belch which was three eaten by the sea that was another one and then i've done about five or six wrath Kelter albums where i wrote all this most of the songs there was some bagpipe stuff on there but it was celtic influenced yes there's lots of stuff out there and i and then paul did a track with me when i was working with chris holmesley in alabama um, I can't remember what it's called, Majorette. It's called Majorette. And uh, it was really good. And then we, for some reason, we've always chatted and sung and been friends. And then he, we started, we talked about working together. And Wyatt bought me uh, at a Mac and with all the logic program and all that. And I, uh, through the pandemic, I, and doing nothing, I learned how to use it. <laughs> 
And um, mm-hmm. so we, Paul and I just started working together. And I said, you know, when we lived in London and we go to the pub m- most nights, one of our friends, Bob Thompson, who sadly passed away now, he would call us the Bolshoi brothers because he'd look out the window and see us going to the pub. And if he was having a bad day, he'd say to himself, oh, look, well, as long as the Bolshoi brothers are on the way at the pub to have their little six o'clock pint and talk, all <laughs> is well with the world sort of thing, you know. I said, we should use that because, I mean, we were in the Bolshoi and it, pro- it would help probably help us open a few doors as far as getting gigs and stuff. Yes. Uh, we've, but I've had offers, uh, you can imagine, David, for years, like go out and play as the Bolshoi with another band and this stuff. And I've always said no because I wanted to keep keep the legacy of the band intact, you know. Yes, well, absolutely. Bolshoi Brothers isn't about being the Bolshoi. It's about just me and, me and Paul and I working on some new music. I don't know if you've heard any of it, but it's, it's actually surprisingly good. It's pretty yes. good. Yes, you got Steam Funk. This yeah. Is- that's the one. So was it, so the lockdown, did that stop you doing your roofing as well? Or Oh, no, I, I stopped roofing a long time ago when I, um, when I came to Florida. I've been, I've been playing music. I just did roofing for a couple of years because I kind of lost my mind. And then I just wanted to, I just wanted to do something as far away from Trevor Tanner as I could, and that was it. And they used, right. to, they used, to, laugh, they used to laugh at me and call me Jose because they all thought I was pretending to be British and I was really Mexican. <laughs> and then I had a big beard and I was – super tanned i remember one of the boys saying to me we were we were hanging out and they, and they said what's your favorite guitar song and I, I said probably die straight salt and swing that's my favorite song the guitar and they were like can you play it i was like yeah i can play it and they were like you can't play that and i said i can and i played along with it and one of them goes man if i could play guitar like that i wouldn't be swinging a hammer for a living and i was like you got a point right <laughs> <laughs> So I've been I've been I've been playing I, I I stopped doing that in the late '90s. So I've just been playing in different bands and stuff since that. Well, since you know then. So my God, and you and and you can hustle a living doing that. Oh yeah, God, I, I'm right now. I'm doing. I do like. I just do all. I'll do. I've just lived by the Les Paul thing. If I've got a guitar and I'm making a dollar, I still I've still doing a lot of original stuff. I play in a, some cover bands and things like that. I do a couple. I do whatever it takes to avoid having to get a real job to grow up. Well, absolutely. This is good. So during the so it was it was during the the lockdown. You and Paul started the project to get you to. It's been going on. Yeah, we just stopped. We started with a song or two, and then we just decided that we would do an album. And and it just it was just everything was really good. I would send I would send Paul sometimes complete garbage, drunken things I would do on the phone at night, just sitting here in a, you know at home. And he sent me something back that was genius. And I'd be like, this is great because Paul's really talented. And he's, you know, he, he falls from sort of much more of a prog rock kind of classical background than me. So he yes. brings that element to it, too. And he's very, very good. He's a very talented guy. Fantastic. And I, he's one of my best friends, too. So it's nice. It's double double edged sword, you know? Yes. So are you working on new material to hopefully get a release out this latter part of this year? Yeah, we've 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 recorded pretty much recorded the album. He's mixing it now. Yeah, and now we're, now we're just trying to you know get our website because we're, it's a new world. There's no record companies anymore, so it's all different. It's all Bandcamp. <coughs> Everyone's on Bandcamp, aren't they? So that's good. But it's, it's I mean, weird for me because I'm a, I'm quite a private person. Um, so, and I'm you know I'm not partic- I, I wouldn't say I'm antisocial, but I like I you know I'm not I'm not really a social butterfly as it were I, my idea of a good time is to just hang out with one person or something or just go to the ocean and watch the waves and drink isla whiskey i just wrote a song about that whiskey mm. isla, i'll send it to you 
Excellent. Well, do. Yeah, I'd love to hear it. I mean, it is amazing just how many people have got that. I've got to make music again. And I'm quite enjoying the fact that they can do it on Bandcamp and they can do it on their computer from anywhere in the world. It's a a double-edged sword for sure, because the problem with it is like back in the day when you had a record company, you got a single. You got to the point you had a single in your hand. You're probably serious about what you're doing. There's a lot of people that I meet now that go, oh, I'm in a band. And I'm like, oh, what's it like? Well, you can see it online and you go and it's a guy with a laptop, you know, and you're like, come on, that's not a band, you know? It's like, yes, I, I get it. Everybody's making music, but, the, but you know, a lot of it's not particularly, you know, I know what the word is. Finished. Yeah. I mean, everyone's a rock star now, aren't they? Everyone's a film director. Everyone's a model. Everybody can do everything. And it's not true. No, there's not. Do, do you feel like there'll be a chance of you and Paul doing a few gigs together do you know oh, promote yeah. them then yeah that's that's the plan we've already got offers um but uh, you know i'm happy to go i'm happy to go out as the bolshoi brothers but again it's not an i want to reiterate it's not an, to me it's not an exercise in nostalgia because i have no interest in doing that and i don't mind playing a couple of the hits if people want to hear them you know mm-hmm. but it'll just be me and paul it won't be a whole band so it won't be the same but i'm not trying to pretend it is the same and i'm not I don't want to do that. I want to do the new stuff. So Yes. Well, I know from, um, is it Rob Lloyd from the Nightingales? He only likes doing the new, newish albums because he, he he can't remember how to play the old ones. And he's like, oh, well, I'll tell you what was a strange experience was when, when Beggars were putting out the Country Life album or the demos that weren't acceptable at the time and suddenly are. Um, <clears throat> I wanted them to remaster for everything. So they did. So they would send it to me for my approval. And I was listening to songs that I wrote and sang and played God, I don't know, 20, 30 years ago. And I couldn't remember them. It's strange, but it's me. It's a very strange experience, you know, and you're like, your brain starts firing again and you go, oh, yeah, I know what's coming next. It's it's strange. It's like listening to an old song you used to like as a kid or something. You know, so it's an odd, a very odd experience that I've never had before. Yes, it is strange when, you know, I had that, I think Roger Whittaker suddenly realised and I must have ensconced that kind of album <laughs> of his when I was about eight and then suddenly think, God, I know the lyrics. You know, a bit like, you know, it's like, God, how did I? But I haven't heard it since, you know, two, you know, 1971 or something. See, it's funny, we were talking about influences. It's like I've, we did this song called West of London Town. It was a B-side. And I, I, I remember Nick talking about the B-sides. And the reason we did all those crazy B-sides was because when you, in those days, when you used the analog tape, that tape's really expensive. And invariably, you have some left over at the end of your proper song recordings. So we'd have like two or three minutes of tape that we hadn't used. And I'd be like, well, I'm not going to waste it. So we do something crazy. That's how we got our silly B-sides about I'm depressed, we all die and West of London Town. And I remember the West of London Town thing was about two weeks after we opened for Wall of Voodoo on a few gigs. And I thought, oh, there's the that's why we were doing that, you know. Right. Well, let's oh. go to like Wall of Voodoo stuff and soaked it in without realising. Was it the case with 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 was it David you mentioned who sort of put together that you know box set and compilation and country life? Did that feel like a nice thing to have that all archived and then put to one side and thought we've got yeah. all our all our work has been now done? Yeah, it felt really good. I was really happy about that, and I I just wanted to make sure that they mastered it to where it would stand up to the other stuff. And um, you know, some of the live stuff is a bit. It's not as polished as it could be, but I think it's still good for people to hear. It's fun, you know. Yes, I mean, if you, if you could have whispered something to your sixteen-year-old self, starting, is there anything particular you would have said? Oh, that's a really good thing to have done or not done.
Um, I don't know why I wouldn't have said. I'd probably said go and buy a Gibson now. Go and get a Gibson. <laughs> never mind. Never mind the other ones. <laughs> <laughs> No, I don't. I, I don't really think about things like that, David. I mean, I, I just, you just, I just live in the moment, you know. The, I just, I'm, I'm, I feel extremely fortunate to be. I feel really happy that I've got the talent to continue to play and all the rest of it. And I, I worked hard at learning to play. Yes, I'm certainly a lot better now than I used to be. But like, I just feel like I'm really lucky. I'm a lucky guy, you know. Yeah, well, good old Les Paul. That's what we say, isn't like it? Like the, uh, what's that song? Getting away with it all my life. I kind of feel like that. <laughs> oh yes that was electronic that was uh, johnny marr and the guy new order pet right Sh yeah pet shop boys That's no good. it was johnny marr and um, bernie wasn't it yeah bernard yeah and um then i think they did a remix with the, the guy from the pet shop boys yes that's good i mean if you you know because i know there's the the obvious singles of the band is there any other songs if someone was like going wanted to discover the band for the you know the first time or Here's something that wasn't the obvious hits. Is there any other songs that you would think, yeah, that's a really good track? Well, I did, I did an album here with, like, I've, I've got, I know a lot of jazz musicians now, and I thought, wouldn't it be nice to do, I did an acoustic Bolshoi album, it's my favourite Bolshoi songs, but with saxophone players and upright bass and stuff like that. And that was fun, because a lot of those songs were written on acoustic guitar. Yes. And I, I always I always felt that Pardon Me was a really good, really nice song that nobody ever really liked that much. But I always liked Pardon Me. Yes. Did you enjoy yeah. having 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 them? I remember Joni Mitchell brought out a live album, of, well, probably two decades ago now, of kind of her early stuff, but re, you know, just re, you know, performed as she is now. Do do you sometimes feel that some of those songs would sort of feel quite interesting if you were doing them as you well, are? I did a thing in a lockdown from a studio um, called Trevor Tanner and the Neighborhood Nutters. I don't know if you saw any of that. That's on YouTube, and I I did like Bolshoi stuff with a jazz drummer and a jazz bass player, with, who who I was making them play in a rock style, but they're still very good musicians. So you can, if you want to check that out, you can hear the results of that for yourself. But that was a strange experience because <clears throat> you're in this really nice studio and they're streaming it really well and it sounds great, but you can't see anybody. You're just yes. in this little room playing, and all these people are talking about you and sending money and whatnot and i kept i kept screwing everything up like forgetting to put my headphones on and and i'm forgetting i was being filmed and making stupid it was really funny but it did really well and people liked it so that's that's a good example of some of that you can actually see on youtube Trevor yes. Town and the neighborhood nutters because during the lockdown there's always one right in the neighborhood that was just and that was me i was the guy on the little goped going around the neighborhood in his underpants you know waving at people and stuff because i just got just my sister would call me from England and she'd go, what's that pile in the back? And i go, well, that's the Guinness I've got in for the next six months. <laughs> <laughs> but you're, you know, I just looked on Spotify. You get over 100,000 monthly listens, don't you? I don't know, do we? 106,000 monthly listeners for the... Is that good? I don't know. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, it is okay. really good. I don't know about that stuff. Paul's good at that stuff as well. I can't. My brain doesn't work like that. I, I I find the whole thing with likes and dislikes and pop, it's almost like a popularity contest at school. I never like I never wanted to go on new faces or anything or the opportunity knots, you know. No. But, but I've been having a good time recently going down the rabbit hole of watching 70s music shows. And there's one from Manchester called Get It Together with Roy North, who used to do Basil Brush. And it's crazy because they had, they didn't have videos in those days. So if they want to do a BG song, 
they do it with the studio orchestra and the next breath they'll go and now here's the pretenders with brass in pockets and you're like <laughs> oh my god <laughs> and there they are you know yes. it's really cool it's interesting and there was the other guy who used to sort of the producer who was very camp and over the top and he did that yeah he did that thing with roll the that was a Saturday morning show, wasn't it? I can't quite remember, but he—he, he, it was a lot to do with him. And there was another woman called Aisha, Aisha, who did sort of uh, another one of those music shows, which um, they they wiped over a lot of the tapes. And I think there was a very yeah. early David Bowie recording that um, you know people wonder if anyone. I saw got... him on Ken, on the Kenny Everett show recently, like doing uh, doing Boys Keep Swinging. That was pretty funny. Right. Did you see okay. David? Did you see David Bowie the film Moon Age Daydream that yeah. came out? Did yeah. you Did you enjoy that kind of the creative aspect yeah. of that? Yeah, it was good. Yeah, I mean, I love anything about David Bowie. I love it. You know. Yes. Actually, well, when I I wrote a song about when he passed away called Shepherd's Pie because I remember his wife saying, "I don't know anything about David Bowie, but I know my Davy Jones. He liked his Shepherd's Pie, and I thought he would always say to her." Can you do us a shepherd's pie love before I go in the studio in New York and stuff? I thought that was so cool. And um, I actually remember I was in I was in the Florida Keys doing a festival when I heard the news. And um I remember I threw my guitar. I saw I saw a politician on TV and I thought, why isn't he dead instead of David Bowie? And I threw my toy string across the room and snapped it in half. So that was kind of interesting. Yes, we always we always wonder how come Bowie's gone and someone it's, else has it. Yeah, still, still. There you go. Well, look, Trevor, thank you ever so much for this. This has been amazing. We got it together. I know. Sorry. The timing was very good. It was four, five, nine, four. It was very good. Yeah, I'm sorry, because I I thought I was I knew I was gonna go with a friend and watch the game. And then I was supposed to go and hang out with him. And then I thought, well, that's kind of selfish of me because you've got stuff to do as well. And I just told him I'm I'm gonna I'll just do the interview from your house. And that worked out well. <laughs> that's fantastic well look that's been amazing thank you ever so much and i hope the uh the project with paul goes really well and um yeah, yeah if, if you if you've got any uh a recording that would be brilliant i'd love to hear it sure i mean i've you have i've got your email now right so I can yes send you, that's true I'll, I'll send you the new song about the whiskey i just did that last week yes have you, have you ever tried isla whiskey no it's from the island of isla in the hebrides and it's made from the peak and the iodine and the sea and the seaweed is all in there. And when you take a sip of it, and I mean a sip, it's like, uh, I, talk, I was saying to my friend, it's like you go walking through a Scottish forest in the moonlight with no shoes on. You feel the mist, you see the moss under your feet, and you come out, there's a beach and there's seaweed and oysters. And it's like, it's what it, it's like that all rolled into one. But it, the first time you try it, it's like somebody slapped you in the face with a wet fish. Right. I think right. you should give it a go. You might enjoy it. I might, I might. And you know your track, Shepherd's Pie, is that available or listen? Can you hear that anywhere? The you audience? can hear it on the, on the Neighbourhood Nutters on the on YouTube live, and I've, I've recorded it with my buddy Stan Piper, and that's, that's going to be a solo release. Oh, God, I love, yeah, anything. Yes, that would be interesting to hear, the Shepherd's Pie. Well, the lyrics Pie. is more or less like, you know, just talking about how you were in school, and I, I put into lines like, Daddy was confused when we wore our sister's pearls. How could we look oh so gay but still get all the girls and that kind of thing? And like how Bowie just helped us get through, you know, some of the hard times in life just by it's okay to be a freak. You know, you're not, there's other people like you. Yes, absolutely. And, uh, yeah. So it's, it's, it's like an homage, an homage to like a, a thank you to him for helping us grow up, grow up in such a nice way, you know? Yes. Yeah. Decent man. Yeah. Well, look, good man. Have a lovely, 
Um, yes, it's morning with you, isn't it? Sorry, Jesus. Well, I've, just, I've watched the Arsenal game and they won, so I'm happy now. So I'm just going to, I'll probably go and do a bit of work in the studio and then I'll probably go down the pub later. Right. Well, look, Trevor, thank you ever so much. All right. It's nice to meet you, David. And I appreciate your interest. Thank you. Take care. All the All best. Right, have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. 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 And that, dear listener, is the end of the interview. You could probably guess that. Anyway, a massive thank you to Trevor Tanner from the Bolshoi and the Bolshoi Brothers with his new musical collaboration with Paul Clark. So there you go. New material will be coming out this year, 2023. We probably just said that. Anyway, look, massive thank you. If you want to find out any more information about the band, just Google away. There's bits here and there. This has been the C86 Show, David E. So if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. Keep it positive and groovy, please. Otherwise, I'm just going to be sad. Um, And all these interviews have been archived on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam. It's true. Anyway, have a great week. Stay, Stay safe.